The Holy Gospel according to St. Luke, the 12th chapter. Glory to you. Jesus said, Do not be afraid, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions and give alms. Make purses for yourselves that do not wear out, an unfailing treasure in heaven, where no thief comes near and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Be dressed for action and have your lamps lit. Be like those who are waiting for their master to return from the wedding banquet so that they may open the door for him as soon as he comes and knocks. Blessed are those slaves whom the master finds alert when he comes. Truly, I tell you, he will fasten his belt and have them sit down to eat and he will come and serve them. If he comes during the middle of the night or near dawn and finds them so, blessed are those slaves. But know this. If the owner of the house had known at what hour the thief was coming, he would not have let his house be broken into. You also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an unexpected hour. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Christ. You may be seated. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and from our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Amen. This week, a man spent so much money on a video game, he became unable to play it. How is that possible? Well, after spending $100,000, over $100,000, in fact, to make his character the biggest, strongest, fastest, uh, and most weapon-laden character in the game, no one would fight him. I mean, what would the point be? You could not possibly defeat a character worth $140,000. The name of the game is Diablo Immortal. Well, that's Spanish for devil, or maybe Latin. Anyway, it means devil. So, so far we're, we're on track here because nothing makes the devil happier than us spending money on video games rather than something worthwhile. And apparently, this is not the only person who has spent a lot of money upgrading his character in this game. In just two months since this game has been unleashed, unveiled onto the world, uh, all of the players around the world have spent a combined $140 million to upgrade their characters. Again, make them bigger, stronger, faster, and more flush with weaponry. Now, I hate to be that guy that says, geez, what could you do with $140 million? But man, what could you do with $140 million? And that's just one game in two months for the upgrading of a fake avatar that I guess is supposed to represent the real you in some way, but don't worry, if, if, if y'all really want to play that game and you don't have enough money to upgrade your character so you're never going to win a fight or anything, right? You can, you can have access to the new version of the game coming out soon, Diablo 4. Uh, you just have to get a tattoo of the game's logo uh, on your body somewhere, right? The Mark of the Beast, perhaps? Well, that just highlights, I think, this incredible divide between where a lot of the culture is and where 
uh, the follower of Christ is called to be. Even if video games can be a harmless pursuit or a diversionary hobby, they surely should not be all-consuming, or uh, the toll on our bank account should be minimal. Beyond the money, video games are definitely the key uh, portal into the future of what some people consider reality. Instead of spending your resources to build up God's kingdom, we'll be spending them building up game characters and avatars. Instead of spending our time in Christian fellowship and devotion, we'll be spending our time walking through virtual worlds of make-believe, buying fake clothes and eating computer-generated burritos. Seriously, Chipotle has a store in the metaverse. Why would you build a burrito that you can't eat? I don't know. Instead of investing our emotions and passions in the lives of others, we will invest them in digital code lurking behind a screen. We'll sacrifice building up our society to live in worlds that other people have created. That's one of my main arguments against Disney and has been for, for, for forever. They create these false worlds and then they say, come live in it, you know. And so long as we can live a little longer in such a world with few consequences, I'm afraid that a lot of us will choose to do so. Kind of like an, an addict putting off rehab just a little bit longer, we will slowly become more and more immersed in the world of make-believe. Unless we have the discipline to throw those consoles in the landfill or to limit our access to them, limit their claim on us. Well, who will suffer? Who will suffer if my predictions are right, uh, if we make these 21st century idols become actual idols? Well, families will not be created. Churches will have fewer members. Civic organizations will not have participants. Municipalities will have fewer voters. Essentially, zombies will pretend to exist in a virtual world that will be good enough for them. Indeed, I think we already are seeing a lot of the portents of that happening. If we are not content to live in this world and build up this world, we will leave that to those who will gladly exchange a little bit of their money for some make-believe. We are not to be denizens, though, of make-believe worlds but rather the inheritors of God's kingdom. That's what Jesus says. He begins this text by telling his sheep not to be afraid, for they are going to inherit the kingdom of God. Now you have probably heard it said that the most frequent command in the Bible is not to be afraid, and I, I don't have any reason to think that is not the case. Uh, it's in the Old Testament as well in the New Testament. Jesus says it many times. And Jesus, of course, has the eternal perspective that we, being creatures, simply lack. We, we have it on faith, as you heard in the, in the great uh, reading from Hebrews 11, the great faith chapter, uh, where all of these faithful servants uh, who looked forward to the things to come, like Abram, uh, for example, Abraham, 
they, they, they now know how the story ends, and we believe and hope for how the story ends, but Jesus knows how the story ends, for he is the Alpha and Omega. And so we live now on faith that this kingdom will indeed be ours. Of course, many people don't believe that. Um, that's, they don't live for that, right? They, they think Jesus was something like a liar, uh, some kind of a fraud, or maybe just nuts or mistaken. Maybe it is not the Father's pleasure, if he even exists, to give us his kingdom. Maybe that's just an opiate to keep us going. Well, of course, I don't think so. I don't think that the soon-to-be-crucified Jesus uh, offers this promise to a group of people uh, regarding an eternal kingdom uh, if he knows it does not exist. He certainly got nothing out of the deal but heartbreak and death on a cross. And his life certainly indicated that he could produce such a kingdom. Indeed, all of his miracles were demonstrating the kingdom of God. And in this kingdom, what do we see? We see the dead raised and the sick healed, the meek blessed, etc. So yes, the followers of Jesus will indeed inherit a kingdom, and therefore they live in light of that. Their priorities are, are adjusted, are created in light of that. Therefore, we are to avoid chasing fantasies, and we are to be responsible stewards. We are to shut off the video games and, and, and be committed to, uh, to making this world better, but not being too attached to this world. That's what Jesus says. He says, sell your alms, or rather, sell your possessions and give alms. Make purses for yourselves that do not wear out. An unfailing treasure in heaven where no thief comes near and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Indeed, where is the heart of a man who spends $140,000, or dare I say, even $140 on a video game character? Where is the heart of the man who will spend money on other silly luxuries? and distractions. There is a saying, and it is true, your possessions uh, own you rather than you owning them. Now, of course, we could do an investigation of all of our lives, and all of us own things we don't absolutely uh, need. I believe in ownership. I defend private property and conversations all the time. But we must guard our heart that the things that we own don't take over our lives. We simply must be willing to let go of anything that gets in the way of our following Christ. Now, I believe in the building up of wealth so that it can be shared with others. Uh, I don't think wise financial stewardship is giving everything away, but rather giving to God a portion of what we are building as we build it. And in the end, everyone will be richer for it. Now, Jesus goes on to also speak about the state of mind, 
Right? This is the, the text. It could be an Advent text. It actually might be an Advent text about being prepared, uh, right? So the homeowner is prepared if the thief in the night comes, uh, or the slave is prepared when the master comes home. In a French kitchen, your, one of your first lessons is going to be about your, your mise en place, right? That is your, your meal prep for everything that you are to make. So that's all of your, your meat and your vegetables and your herbs and your spices all carefully arranged so that as you are cooking, everything is already in its place. Indeed, mise en place means everything in its place. But in a, in a kitchen, especially a restaurant environment, your mise en place is really your state of mind. Before you are to cook, especially if you're, again, cooking for a lot of people and time is of the essence, your state of mind must be in the right place, not just your food. Because your meal does not only require the ingredients, but it requires your care and your attention. Now, if that is true for cocova or beef bourguignon, how much more true is it of us who follow Christ? Jesus says, be dressed for action and have your lamps lit. While we are not to be constantly, frantically running about, we are to be prepared. And I don't think that necessarily means having a go bag by the door. Uh, these days, a lot of people are selling, you know, 25-year meal kits and things like that for food shortages. Probably wise to buy a few uh, dry food ingredients extra these days, maybe some bottles of water. If nothing else, it's, with inflation, it's a good investment, right? You buy it when it's cheap, and it'll be, it'll be, and that'll be the price you got it at. But I don't know if that's really what Jesus is talking about. I think it's about paying attention, understanding how Christianity applies to the world in which you find yourself, because the world in which you live is different from the, the world of your grandparents and their grandparents, and frankly, it's different from the world of your grandchildren and their grandchildren. So you have to apply Christianity now. That is paying attention. Be prepared to defend Christianity in a world of unbelief. Apply the ethics of Jesus to any situation. Being aware of news and trends and influences in the world. Understand your place in the moment. All of that is part of being ready. It is knowing yourself well enough to know the difference between the call of God through his word on your life and the siren call of the world. It is knowing the Bible well enough to know the difference between what God actually says and thinks about things rather than what maybe even a preacher says and thinks about things, speaking for God. Over and over again, on the daily, the Christian has to say no to the world as part of being ready. In our time, and I really do believe this is a revolutionary scale uh, idea, the very concept of reality is what the Christian is going to have to defend. Our readiness is being able to tell the difference between what is real 
and what is fake. They didn't have to worry about that in the 1700s, but we will in the 22nd century, the 21st century. Real is God's world, God's word, God's law. Fake is computer games, things like gender reassignment, many more things besides. Do not be pulled into the false worlds and do everything you can to pull your family and friends out of those false worlds should they find themselves in them. For we have been promised a kingdom. And I believe that promise because in all that he said and did, Jesus shows us what this kingdom looks like. Shall we sacrifice a kingdom for a world of lies and deceit? Surely not. Surely we would never forsake so great a treasure. Amen. The Holy Gospel according to St. Luke, the 12th chapter. Glory to you, O Lord. Jesus said, I came to bring fire to the earth, and how I wish it were already kindled. I have a baptism with which to be baptized, and what stress I am under until it is completed. Do you think that I have come to bring peace to the earth? No, I tell you, but rather division. From now on, five and one household will be divided, three against two, and two against three. They will be divided, father against son, and son against father, mother against daughter, and daughter against mother, mother-in-law against daughter-in-law, and daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. He also said to the crowds, when you see a cloud rising in the west, you immediately say, it is going to rain, and so it happens. And when you see the south wind blowing, you say, there will be scorching heat, and it happens. You hypocrites, you know how to interpret the appearance of earth and sky, but why do you not know how to interpret the present time? The Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Christ. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and from our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. I have recently undergone an attempt to read the entire Bible in a year. Many of you may have accomplished such a feat. I don't know that it's going to happen, I'm sorry to say. Uh, I've fallen a little bit behind, but I am still trying. I'm using a Bible that was designed for that purpose. It, it has not just sort of cover to cover, but it combines certain readings to get you through it in 365 calendar days. But the process has reminded me uh, how difficult and intimidating the Bible really can be, especially for someone who has a hard time focusing for very long. I have to keep a to-do list off to the side because I'm frequently distracted by all the other things I need to be doing so I can write it down and then get back to reading but I've also been reminded, of course, by how much of the Bible is actually, you know, the Old Testament. If you count it by books, the Old Testament is only 59% of the Bible. But 78% of the Bible's chapters, 74% of its verses, and 
percent of all the words in the Bible are actually in the Old Testament. So if you want to embark on reading the entire Bible in a year, uh, let's see, pretty much from January through September, for example, would be reading the Old Testament. For a variety of reasons, church piety and worship services highlight the New Testament texts. Of course, Jesus is the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. He is God in human flesh. Uh, he is the end of the story, kind of a big deal. As a result, then, at least some of the Old Testament actually technically does not apply anymore, right, in, in the modern context. And let's face it, a lot of the stories are so remote from our daily experience that it can be hard to relate. And there are so many names and places, uh, you know, things just to which, you know, we just, just to get familiar with, to, to even sort of get started, that we can find the Old Testament intimidating. Some Christians, if you call them Christians, uh, have throughout history tried to sort of get rid of the Old Testament, uh, exclude it from the canon. Marcion uh, actually tried to do just that. He thought 10 of Paul's letters and the Gospel of Luke should be the only Christian Bible you would ever need. Now, like I said, he was a heretic. Megachurch uh, pastor Andy Stanley recently said that Christians should unhitch, that was the name of his sermon series, unhitch themselves from the Old Testament. I say, Marcionism renewed. Some years ago, some former members uh, here, they told me that they had detected a change in me. I had become more intense, less optimistic, less gospel-centered. What had happened, they asked. I told them that if there was such a change, in addition to just getting older and crankier, uh, if such a change had taken place, it was probably the result of my recording that two-year daily lectionary podcast, which is still out, and I still update it daily. But as a result of all that reading and recording, I was spending a lot more time in the Old Testament than I normally would. And indeed, there is a seriousness and an intensity in the Old Testament that makes simple or pious Christianity impossible. The trite platitudes that, to be honest, often define American Christianity, they're quickly revealed to be shallow if and when you spend a significant amount of time in the Old Testament. The easy listening versions of Christianity, they simply do not survive such exposure. For unless you divide the gods of the Old and New Testament, that's exactly what Marcion, the heretic, was trying to do. This is why he was a heretic. You come to see that the one God of the universe has worked with uniformity across the centuries for his purposes and his glory and in his time. This isn't only about us and our salvation. This is about God working through all of history and sometimes with more violent results than we might like. 
to admit. Indeed, reading the whole Bible will force you to get a little more comfortable with conflict. You're reminded again and again of the costs of following God, and even the coming of Christ did not change that reality. In truth, I would argue this should be true of every serious worldview claim if the adherents of that worldview believe it to be uh, true and universal. Every religion, be it uh, secular humanism, Satanism, atheism, wokeism, environmentalism, they all believe that they have the key that picks the lock on the nature of life and the universe and reality. They all believe their way is the best. If they didn't, they wouldn't believe it. And they believe in enforcement as well. Why else would global leaders concoct carbon emissions plans? Why else would public schools have the sexual education curricula that they do? You think they just picked some at random? Why else would Satanists try to get Baphomet? That's the uh, creepy guy with the goat head. Uh, and they have a statue of him made. Why else would they try to get that statue in the public square? You think that Christianity is the only divisive religion in the world? No. They all are. Or at least they all should be if they are sincerely believed. Now that doesn't mean, of course, that we cannot peacefully coexist, as the bumper sticker says. But it does mean that the outworking of every worldview will come into conflict with others at some point. And through some process or series of processes, be it judicial or democratic or even through war, one of those will win and the others will lose. Every society has to have some agreed upon standard by which it will continue to operate. Now we should thank God that for most of us, the costs will be at most financial or perhaps some kind of social stigmatization, maybe embarrassment. Hopefully that will be true for my children and my grandchildren as well. Cardinal Francis George, a Catholic cardinal who died recently from the Chicago area, he was far less optimistic. He said in 2010, in 2010, we think those were the peaceful days, he said in 2010, I expect to die in my bed, which he did. My successor will die in prison, and his successor will die a martyr in the public square. His successor will pick up the shards of a ruined society and slowly help rebuild civilization as the church has done so often in human history. Well, of course, I hope that he's wrong because I've grown accustomed to my cushy lifestyle. Uh, I would be the guy either in prison or executed in the town square in, if, if his prediction is true. But what do we see in the scriptures today? In Hebrews, we have this remarkable passage about those who have kept the faith. 
Uh, all of whom, by the way, are Old Testament figures, of course. That's why the book is called Hebrews. It's putting the Old Testament to the light of the revelation of Christ. And it reads this. They were stoned to death. Uh, they were sawn in two. They were killed by the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, prosecuted, tormented, of whom the world was not worthy. Interesting twist, isn't it? The world isn't worthy of the very people it executes and humiliates. You see, the world believes that it gets to decide who is worthy to live in it and not, but it's actually the other way around. God says that the world is unworthy of those who truly follow him. Jesus says, Do you think that I have come to bring peace to the earth? No, I tell you, but rather division. From now on, five in one household will be divided, three against two, and two against three. And contentions between in-laws, all joking aside with our in-law arguments, they will be so fierce because parents will accuse spouses of their children of drawing their son or daughter away from saving faith. Truly, there can be nothing so terrifying for a parent as an influence that undoes all of the work that they did to train up the child in the way that they should go. So yes, while Jesus brings a sweet gospel indeed, not everyone will approve, for they will rightly see his claims for what they are, perhaps with more clarity even than the new convert himself. Jesus' call is a total claim on the life of the Christian. And while it is a bliss beyond measure that God's kingdom is ours, that we have been saved from our sins, that Jesus' resurrection has merited eternal life for us, others will see it as a false teaching that brings nothing but misery. No matter how gracious we are, Jesus will always be a supreme authority who is dangerous. This teaching from Jesus ends with his rebuke that those who know when a heat wave is coming but they can't read the signs of the day. To Christians, I believe this is an ever-present warning. See what is going on in the world around you and don't be so naive reducing all of Christianity to platitudes that amount to everything is going to be okay is not good enough. We need to see the ways the enemies of Christ are arrayed against him first and his people second. But do not despair. For though this reality of our faith may bring difficulty, it is not without its rewards. We indeed have a trailblazer who has run the race before us. As the author of Hebrews says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings to us so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who, 
for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. There will be a day, brothers and sisters, when we will be with Jesus, and we will be so joyful that the name of Christ that caused so much division, it also brought about the family of God. Amen.